Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Thank you for joining us at the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene as we celebrate the power of the Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Sunday. Download more sermons or learn about the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene at our website, capenazarene.org. Here's this week's message. Pentecost Sunday. This day we celebrate and remember that God's Holy Spirit is with us, been poured out on the church. And this is a day of great promise because it means we're not left alone. Jesus didn't raise and ascend to heaven just to kind of leave us to kind of wallow in a broken world. Uh, His Holy Spirit's poured out so that we can have deliverance and freedom and, and liberty from the sins of this world and that we can live in the power of our Heavenly Father and know that uh, He's with us. And so this is a great day to celebrate uh, uh, God's continual work among the church. And and we remember on this day, as um, Fred read from that great reading in Acts, that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the gathered disciples. The disciples gathered, anticipating, waiting for Jesus to return, waiting for Jesus' promise when He said, hey, the Comforter's going to come and He's going to come and unite um, God's people, and they're, they're praying, and they're earnestly waiting for this. And what they find on that day, when the Holy Spirit descends, they say it is as if there were tongues of fire. It seems like they see fire from heaven, and, and they realize that something powerful is happening. And then they start to speak in other languages, and no one can make sense of it. And they say, what do you mean you can hear them in your language? We have all kinds of languages represented here. There's no way you can understand what he's saying. You, you've got to be out of your mind or been drinking too much. And so they're just trying to make sense of what is happening. But the Holy Spirit, what it does on that day when they are gathered, is it is enabling each and every believer to speak God's truth, to speak God's promise to those around them and helping them find the language to do so. And so every now and again, I'll hear someone say or testify about a missionary journey or trip where they're sharing the news of God and someone with a different language said, I knew what you were saying and talking about and we get a glimpse of something like that. But when I read that passage, I think to myself, what does that mean for us? Except, wow, each of us, God will help give the words to, to do the interpretation, to be the witnesses that we need to be in our area of the world. As Fred was going through those different world areas, I just said, yeah, that's, that's their known world. <laughs> that's all their countries that they're aware of. God has equipped them for the known world. So this is, this is the day we celebrate today. God is with us and uses us precisely where we are to minister and witness about what God's love can do in each and every one of our lives. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are enabled for service. And First uh, Peter chapter 5 is the closing as we've been going through this letter. And that last chapter is a word to the church. The church has now been filled with the Holy Spirit, is now living in a world that is still very much uh, just turned against the way of God, has been persecuting them. And, and uh, we have looked over the first couple chapters, or the first four chapters, and we've seen, indeed, this is a church that is dealing with persecution. We've seen that this is a church trying its best to be faithful Uh, to God and to the message where they are. And so now he speaks to the church, the church that is supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's his word from 1 Peter chapter 5. As an elder myself and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you to do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger accept the authority of the elders. And all of you must clothe yourself with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, whom I consider a faithful brother, I've written this short letter to encourage you to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Your sister church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Paul speaks to the church. Hey, I've written this letter about how you are to live, how you're supposed to live among one another and help be gracious to one another. And now he says, now I want to say to the elders of the church. Now the elders of the church are, are most likely the leaders of the church, those who have come to be called elders, but there is a sense in which he compares them with, hey, there are those who are younger than you under your charge, that he could also be speaking just those who have been in the faith for a long time, those who have been faithful and steadfast and have been that influence that people look to and say, oh, you are someone who has been through this and you are still a wonderful believer. How can we learn from you? He speaks to those elders and he speaks to the light leaders who are now guiding the spirit-filled church. And he says to them, we don't lead for gain. When I was in seminary, whenever someone would talk about that as an idea, we would chuckle and we would laugh. Because we knew that if we were going into, if we wanted to make money, ministry was not where we, what we wanted to study. We would do business or we would do something else, but, uh, uh, but not going into the ministry. And uh, part of that, at least in the Church of the Nazarene, is this is the statistic I learned uh, last General Assembly six years ago. The largest percentage of ministers in the Church of Nazarene, something like 70%, come from small churches. Uh, Jess Middendorf was, Middendorf was uh, gave me that statistic when he was saying to the people who were gathered, he says, we love the small church. So many of our ministers come from the small church. And he says, and we're trying to figure out how that is, but all we can think of is it's within that body of believers they find indeed the love of Christ who continues to nurture and train up people who say, yeah, I, I, I want to give back. Uh, I, God feels like God is calling me to this. And, and so for the largest number of us in seminary, we found ourselves saying, we know what ministry looks like. Oftentimes it looks like ministry. 
uh, in a small church or in a community that uh, can't uh, fully support a, a pastor oftentimes. And, and it's there, but yet we find that God is often amazingly at work in those communities. And so uh, the majority of those churches will do whatever they can to take care of their pastor, and they'll find ways to do that. I've seen that again and again in the various churches I've served in. And as a pastor, I can even say to, to you, thank you for the care that you have provided to my family, but not only mine, but those before, whether it was Brent or John, or even as uh, uh, we saw last week when Jeff Barker came up here and he came and he read scripture for us. And he says, hey, I just have to say, you guys made me who I am as a minister. And he's telling that story. And I remember talking with him afterwards and he said, you made me who I am. And he says, and when I came up here and I was reading, I looked out and I saw the faces of those who were here when I was here. And he said, even when taking communion, most of the time when I go to a church and I receive communion, it's a plastic cup that everyone's throwing away. And he says, but this with those glass cups, it brought me back (laughs) to my time here. And so he shares that. I just want to say thank you, church, for that. So verse 2, Peter is saying to the congregation, he is saying, this is not about power. This is not about money. This is not only spoken to the elders or perhaps the ministers who are going to be in the church, but to those within the church as well. The horror stories I hear from fellow pastors are ones who find themselves in a church where someone did whatever they could to get on the board just because they wanted say and they wanted to exert some kind of influence in the way in which the church operated. Peter says to the church, everything we are about is shepherding the flock, living in love for one another, uh, helping us know and experience what the Holy Spirit desires to do in our life. And so he says to them, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. Humility. Uh, Humility does not mean humiliation. Rather, it describes our position before God. If we recognize what God has done for us in our life and how He's changed and motivated us, it it means that we are amazed by what God has done in our life and we want to be surprised by what God's going to do in the lives of those around us. And we want to be just as patient and gracious with them as God has been with us. And so we're humble because we serve a great God. Ah. I, uh, I want to tell you a story about uh, a conversation I had with um, a new district superintendent. Not this one. We happen to have a new district superintendent here, but it was on a different district. And um, I was fairly new to minister. I've only been a minister for about five years now. And, uh, and we had a newly uh, elected district superintendent. And, I, and I'm talking to him about uh, my ministry and how I became a pastor and everything. And I told him about that little church called Gun City, which I've mentioned time to time here. This little rural church just uh, southeast of Kansas City while I was going to seminary. And I pastored there. And they were in a little town of about 80. They had a little outhouse in the back. I mean, th- it was just this tiny old country church. And... Um, and I remember I, I telling the district superintendent, I said, this, there's quite a story here with this church. I said, they aren't a Nazarene church, but they, they, they kind of are because they've had Nazarene seminarians coming and preaching for over 50 years. And they're using our curriculum from the publishing house. And, um, 
I, sa- I said, but uh, of those pastors who've been coming for the last 50 years, two of them have gone on to become general superintendents. Multiples of them have, have continued on in ministry. And it's just amazing how that small church has done so much to, to lead and train and equip those for ministry later on. And I said, and here's the thing about this church. And I was talking to this district superintendent who is, you know, gearing up for, you know, uh, the church growth models that he is trying to share with his district, which is good because, ever, you know, it's good to have the church growing because if the church is growing, it means that there is influence and there is difference being made. But I said to him, I said, this little church, if they had a 100% conversion rate in their town, I said, it's not growing above 80 and that's on a good Sunday when everyone's healthy. <laughs> I said, it's just never going to be a big church. But it has made a significant impact even on our denomination. In fact, right after my tenure, the, the past, and I was only there for like a year before, because I, I joined my like final year of, uh, of seminary. And, uh, and so uh, even after that, the next pastor uh, invited the seminary president to come and speak. And we had this lady in the church. We called her the matriarch of the church. Oh, she, she was great. She, she, create, she, she baked our little communion bread every week. And, and it was this crispy little round wafer. And, uh, and she baked it every week and brought it for communion. And I, and I handed it out. But before I did, she was playing piano. And uh, we, I did the opposite for whatever reason. Instead of giving her the communion last, I gave it to her first, the, what we do here. And I would give it to her. And because it was this wafer, instead of breaking off a piece, she took her finger and broke it for everybody. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and, uh, and that was just how it happened. And so just be glad Diane doesn't do that for us and you get your own individual <laughs> wafer. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, but she, uh, when uh, the pastor after me came and brought the seminary president to come and just like, you know, uh, give a message and thank them for having, you know, I don't know, training pastors for like the last 50 years that had been at the seminary, she said to him, well, it's about time. <laughs> We've trained more pastors than you have, I think she told them. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, uh, what, what the DS said, after I told him this story about this, this small church, and he says, thank you for that. He says, there is abs- there's something to be said for a church that even if this, that is the size, that is the dynamic it will always be, he says, that it has a message and a purpose and it has a role in the life of the church. And he says, and, and it was such a great outlook for him. And since then... Um, the pastor that was just before me, he is now a, um, he, uh, he passed for a while, he's now a chaplain for a fire department, and uh, we had, and the pastor before him is, uh, she is now the district superintendent of upstate New York, just a few hours away, and so we have indeed uh, a church that said, hey, we, they were just being faithful to God and what God was going to do, and I love the fact, fact that we have Jeff Barker, who was here last week, and we got to see again what that looks like. And I want to say, and so when I hear Peter say, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, and humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, that what he's saying to a church, he's saying to a church that's facing persecution, doesn't know what their future looks like. 
And he's saying, look, the biggest, most important thing for you in your life is this, faithfulness to God. Don't worry about what the results are going to be. Just worry about being faithful to God, and you'll be surprised by what God will do. Now, as a pastor, I have examples of different ministers and how they've been trained and how things have moved around. But I want to say in the life of the church, it's so much more than that, too. It's your children. It's your grandchildren. It's your neighbors. It's all of our contacts who are recognizing that this is a church, indeed, that makes a difference for God, and God is making a difference in their life. And what matters more than anything in the life of the church not the power of the elders, not the power of the pastor, not, 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 not anything other than our faithfulness to God and our openness to what we are going to allow the Holy Spirit to do in our life. And so he continues on, saying to the church, cast all your anxiety on him. He cares for you. And we live in a world right now where anxiety is what we know. We know that term. We talk about it a lot. We acknowledge it. We recognize it. Being anxious is not the boogeyman it once was. We read about it. We write about it. We receive help for it. There are lots of ways to address anxiety. Counselors, medication, acknowledging limitations, talking about it, all kinds of numbers of things. And what Peter says to this church, who indeed is dealing with all kinds of things to worry about, is he is saying, cast it upon God. You know, praying... The act of prayer is, in its own way, a centering, meditating, reflecting, focusing of your life on healthy practices. And if prayer was nothing more than self-monitoring and self-reflection, it would be a helpful practice. While prayer encompasses all this, it is also an act of trust, that there is a God who hears this prayer and a God who acts on our behalf. Some of the most beautiful prayers and some of the most very real prayers found from antiquity are found in our Psalms. And one of the things we find there is a significant amount of anxiety. (laughs) Uh, An anxiety that in the Psalms themselves is never resolved. The prayers oftentimes merely just release them in the hope of God's faithfulness. We can read some of those psalms, particularly some of the psalms of David, right? We'll say, God, you are great, you are to be praised, and he'll say this, and then he'll start praying, deliver me from my enemies, they surround me, everything's coming against me, and then he's going to close and say, God, I'm going to give you praise. And it's like, okay, God hasn't dealt with it yet, it's still there. But that's what prayer is. It is, it is recognized that even when something isn't resolved, prayers are releasing them to the hope of God's faithfulness. It doesn't have to solve the issue, but cast it out in trust and in hope. And I think that's the key to prayer for me. It's a practice that turns worry and concern into a release of trust. That even if anxiety is still there, that there's also a force that exists with me in the middle of it. A force that comes from above, beyond, and it's over and stronger than anything that comes my way. And so he says to all of us, remember to cast that to God as well. And trust that he is with us through that. Verse 8, he says, discipline yourselves. Keep alert. The lion, the adversary, 
is roaring like a lion ready to devour. I've grown up with a lot of different takes on this verse. The devil is creeping around like a lion to devour you. I think I heard that so many times growing up that I, I nearly have it, that I think I have it memorized in the NIV version. I was dancing around the NRSV here just a second ago because I was like, wait a minute, that's not how I remember it. But the devil creeps around like a lion waiting to devour you. I've heard religious leaders say this again and again. In fact, it has become kind of a verse that is meant to tell us about who the adversary is, who the devil is and what he is. And so we have this idea that he is always kind of like on our shoulder, if you will. He is always nearby, ready to trip us up and and get us going. And then there are a number of solutions to be proposed for that. And often... Uh, those solutions are anything from you can personally go to prayer, and that's absolutely true. When tempted, when tried, when we realize, okay, I think there is something moving against me right now, to go before God and say, God, I need your power and I need your help is absolutely true. And sometimes the task that I heard was just say the name of Jesus loud. And so uh, we, we would do that, and we just say the name of Jesus loud. And, and, I, and I found that practice became kind of widespread. It wasn't just a personal thing. It became a very vocal thing among people I've seen. Sadly, I've seen it used in a manipulative way a lot of times on television. There's a prayer request that comes in (laughs) on the phone line or something like that, and Jesus' name gets used as if it's a magic word. (laughs) I'm just going to say Jesus to this and just trust and hope that there's healing or freedom or that the devil is gone now. There's been so much emphasis on this verse about the devil roaring around and prowling like a lion to devour us that it's, it's often just been a generic warning. Watch out, the devil's out to get you. Watch out, it's going to happen. And that has been in our narrative for so long, there's been all kinds of movies about that. Maybe a couple good, some decent ones, mostly bad ones. Uh, lots of horror movies about you know the devil doing something, getting ready, just prowling ready to get you with some force or some evil. And as I look at 1 Peter 5, this is the first thing he ever says about the devil. And so I can't help but think this is a way of him warning the church about succumbing to the ways of the world. He's talked with them earlier in the chapters before. Don't live like they do. Watch out. It's going to be tempting when you come to believe and say, oh man, I need to go back to that old way of life. Don't do that. That is a lion ready to devour you. That those who reject humility that he calls us to and lean into the power of the world, those who reject the discipline, when he says discipline yourselves, keep alert. And say, okay, I don't know if I want to live a disciplined life following God. I like that old way of life. The world is more appealing. The lion prowls. Those who reject casting their anxiety on God because they've sunk into despair and just say, this is who I am now. That is a devouring that is taking place. A devouring that is not of God, that is not God's will for us. God's desire is not that we seek the power of the world. It's not that we can't live a life disciplined towards the love God has called us to. God's desire is not that we would only be defined by our anxieties. When we give up to the power moves of the world, whether that's extortion or violence or war or whatever that is, or we give in to the sins of the world, or we give in to the fears of the world, 
We are being devoured. And so this is not just the generic worry or despair to which he's referencing. Um, it certainly isn't a replacement for all the various methods of care out there as well. But what he is referring to for the church is specifically the anxiety and the worry that they have of losing their life, of losing their liberty, of losing what the world is trying to take away from them precisely because they are Christians. And so when he says resist the devil, after all, you know your brothers and sisters in the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. He's speaking to a church that's looking around and saying it was a whole lot easier before everyone knew we were Christian and maybe we should change things up. And he's saying, no, that is the devil trying to devour you and take you away from God's holy plan. And he has in mind for them the anxiety caused because he knows people are actually out to get them, trying to tell them that their life doesn't have value in their society precisely because they're trying to remove their life from their society, to take it from them. And he says the God of all grace is going to call you into his eternal glory. But he also says he's going to restore, support, strengthen, and establish us in God's plan and God's family. Pentecost Sunday is a celebration of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to do just that, to be restored, to be supported, to be strengthened, to be established. That casting our cares on Him brings deliverance and brings the power of the Holy Spirit for holiness, for the discipline of love, and that, that it, it would engender humility in, a, in us because we are comparing ourselves to the Holy Spirit poured out and not, not to one another and thinking, oh, I'm better, or I'm worse off, or anything like that. But just saying, I know who I am and God, the one who has loved me enough to change and direct my life. And there exists in this passage a sign of great deliverance. If there's doubt, can God's power really do that in my life? Can God really change me? Can He actually affect the world around me? Can he actually work when there's areas of oppression or an evil around us? And so he closes off his letter by saying, hey, I want to send greetings. And he says Mark, his son, wants to send greetings. But he also says there's a church. And this church is in Babylon. Babylon. You know, the dreaded place that was the location of their ancestors' exile when they are taken out of the promised land and they were enslaved there, Babylon. The place that in the book of Revelation becomes the very symbol, the embodiment of all oppression and evil and everything that's wrong with this world. Yet Peter says to this church, there is a church there. God is at work there. That, that very church, which is in the very belly of the beast... Sends greetings, extends grace. And the truth is, there are always people who have been where we are, hear their story, believe their faith, experience their encouragement, allow the God who has worked in their life to work in yours as well, to restore, support, strengthen, and establish us, as he says here. And so this is, this is a passage that says to a church that's wondering what happens next. What is God able to do and what's happening in my life? He says, the Holy Spirit is at work and if we will continue to live and serve one another humbly 
and believe in God and in the resources God has provided for us to turn our lives to Him and yield to Him and trust that He will be with us and see us through. Our point and our purpose is to be faithful in the here and now and be surprised by what God is going to do as He strengthens, supports, and restores who we are. This day is Pentecost Sunday, and for the last two years, this will be our third year, we've had uh, a unique kind of tradition, um, something I, I, I think we're the only church that I know of that, that does it this way, but um, we, we have a tradition here, at least a three-year tradition, of, um, of together gathering uh, the branches of the previous Palm Sunday and burning them together. It's a way in which we remember that the activities of the year are tied together. Usually in the churches, well, all the churches do, they take the palm branches and after they dry out a couple weeks later, they'll either burn them and then have those ashes for the following Ash Wednesday service, a remembrance in which we remember Christ has died for us and forgives us of our sins. Uh, but uh, uh, some, some pastors I know uh, leave them to dry and forget about them until the week before Ash Wednesday and then burn them there. And um, I found myself thinking, uh, what if instead of that just being an act that the pastor does, what if we do that as a church? And what if on this day, on Pentecost Sunday, when we'll burn the palm branches, the branches that initially we waved and cheer in celebration of, of Christ the King who has come to save us. And then we place them on the altar table afterwards and, uh, and, uh, uh, and that has been a symbol of our praise. And, when, and later on, that's going to be a symbol of, the ashes of them are going to be a symbol of God's salvation. And I found myself thinking, what if we burn them together and we created a fire, a fire that on this Sunday has always represented the Holy Spirit is with us and desires to work and equip us for what God has called us for. And so today, uh, you're going to have an opportunity to come forward and receive and, and get another branch. And I wonder if today we might use that as something we want to lift up to God. If there is a, um, an issue of pride, if there is an issue of, okay, God, I know I have not been exactly uh, who I need to be for the neighbors with which you have uh, put in my life, the faces with which you have brought before me to be your witness, here it is. Help me give that up and live faithfully to you. If it's, Lord, I, there's, there's a discipline in my life that needs to be turned over to you, and I need your Holy Spirit's power to release me of that sin, or to release me of that, uh, of that practice, so I can be, uh, be a person who, who lives a life more glorified and focused on you, perhaps you would take a branch and use that to focus on that, and we'll burn that together. Perhaps you'll say, Lord, there, there's anxiety, there's a concern I have and that has just been, I've been wrestling with and I, and I need to get the help for it or I've been getting the help for it but I haven't lifted it up to you yet. Lord, here it is. I lift it up to you in prayer asking for you to deliver and to provide hope and encouragement. I wonder if uh, we might take one of these branches as a symbol of something that, first, that, that Peter has said in this chapter that says, this is who we get to be. We, we put ourselves before the Lord. And we get to be surprised that the Holy Spirit continues to be poured out anew in the life of the church. And so uh, this morning, when you receive the elements, 
You can put them together in one hand and then grab, grab a palm branch. And um, after we've had communion and we've done our final singing, we're going to go out. The, the service is going to continue for just a moment. We're going to go out uh, the left side. There's a door down the steps over here. And there's a little fire pit, and we're going to put our palm branches in there. We're going to burn those together. And that, those are going to become the ashes for next Ash Wednesday. But also, I wonder, as we burn them, we might do so remembering. Our God has said we can lift up our concerns to Him, and His Holy Spirit will be with us. And when we see the fire, help us remember and say, God has poured out His Spirit on the church, and I want to be a part of what the Holy Spirit is going to do in my life and the lives of those around me. And so you're going to be welcome to do that with us today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word that comes from Peter. A word that seems so very specific for the church he's writing and the concerns that they have. But Heavenly Father, we see in there that the call he has for the church is the call for all of us exactly where we are. That we may not know what happens next, but what we do know is that you have called us to faithfulness now. And what has happened throughout the life and the history of the church is that you have been faithful in those moments. And so, Heavenly Father, we are praying for your hand, and we are praying that we get to be a part of that. We are praying for your guidance. And Heavenly Father, wherever there is need, would you please help us to be faithful to you. Before we pray the Lord's Prayer, Heavenly Father, I lift up whatever is happening in our community right now, praying for your safety and for your hand on the emergency that's, that's taking place. Uh, be with them. We thank you, Lord, that we can lift up these kinds of concerns to you, these kinds of worries to you, and know that even if we don't know what happens next, we know that you hear that prayer, that this is what Peter meant when he said you can cast everything on our Heavenly Father. Thank you again for loving us and taking care of us. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a special Pentecost celebration at the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve Him this week.